think like the two um, markets that get slept on are actually um, insurers and then pharma. Hi, and welcome to the Decipher Health Tech Podcast, where we explore the intersection of healthcare, technology, and business. My name is Mohammed. And I'm Hyder. And today we're ch- chatting with Matt Sakamoto, the virtual primary care doctor, CMIO to major health system, and a volunteer mentor at Matter, advising early stage health tech startups. Really excited to bring this conversation. Hi, we have uh, Matt Sakamoto here today. He's a CMIO at a large West Coast health system um, and a prolific startup advisor. He's a mentor with the Matter uh, Health Tech Accelerator. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of what you do and what your what your uh, experience has been with your startup advising and then your work on the on the health system side. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I do too much. Um, but <laughs> if I put it into buckets, I have, my, I have my clinical life. So I'm a virtual primary care doc. I mean, I've done a lot of work in the telehealth space, particularly kind of hybrid and virtual um, value-based settings. Also do a lot of work in operational clinical informatics. So it's a lot of stuff where just teaching docs how to use a lot electronic health record better. For me, I always am like the king of efficiency. So how can we kind of teach tools um, and do those tools? That tends to be my day job. Um, for the most part. And then the fun part that I really like to do is the startup advising. So throughout the pandemic, maybe a little bit before, have really worked with small stage, early stage startups. It started out in the um, place, people that were trying to flip into telehealth. Like, how do you do this? I had been doing it for at least a few, few years prior. So helping companies make that um, virtual care transition. But now it's I've kind of um, spread spread that portfolio to all kind of uh, different things. Well, we can talk about some specifics in a little bit, but yeah, early stage startups, people trying to make a difference both for like patient facing things and or making clinicians lives better. So anything that can fill those gaps, I'm always super excited to think about and talk about. Well, that's so great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the overview, Matt. I think um, we really wanted to dive straight into sort of the, the startup advising side of it. And in your experience, have there been any common themes that are sort of notable around successful startups that you've you've gone in and said, wow, these are they're really doing this right that you've noticed in your time at Matter? Yeah, and I think and I'll, I'll talk a little bit kind of just a background of the Matter piece as well. I got into it actually when I was a med student. This is about five or six years ago now. Um, and it's called like a mentor clinic. So like it's a three 30 minute blocks where I'll kind of just like talk to three different startups over the course of a, of a morning. Um, and for me, it, it's almost like working urgent care. So you have some patients or some startups that are needing more help than others. Others that are like a little more well-adjusted um, and, and need a little less work. And it, it almost became continuity clinic. So like I would, you know, I, I, I would host these sessions once a month and it's fun. I would actually see people kind of come back, iterate, have an idea one month and come back another month. Um, so I got to see a you know a wide range of, of digital health companies, but yeah, to get back to your question about any any particular themes, I have a huge bias towards this, but I think getting having a clinician on your if you're if you're delivering services, if you're delivering um, some level of services, be it at, at a nurse level, pharmacist level, or clinician level, having a clinical person on your team makes a big difference. There are so many things that people experience as patients that they don't. Um, understand kind of like all the moving parts that are happening in the background. And unless like you've worked in a clinic or like worked in a hospital or like in an OR suite, 
the number of moving parts, I think just like doesn't really land unless you've done that. So I think like having someone like as a core member of your team, or at least like a really, really tight advisor um, is a differentiator for a lot of these, um, again, any, anyone that, that's providing services. If you're pure software, that's one thing, but if you're providing services, um, having someone that understands kind of those logistics and has seen it just makes a huge difference. You have um, any examples of just, you know, disastrous implementation due to not having a clinician? You don't have to name names, but... <laughs> It's not no disasters. Um, and again, I try, I try to pick the companies I work with, like based on a certain level of like, <laughs> what, what is what is my personal risk that they will be a disaster? Um, no, but it's small stuff because like a lot of the things that I coach on and advise on is like, how do you get traction, right? Like, how do you get adoption? How do you get that partnership with that first health system or whoever that might be? And credibility is part of it. A specific example I always give um, to some of the clinical informatics fellows I work with is that as a clinician, I come in with an informatics background, but even just as like a pure frontline clinician, um, you know how things should look. So the specific one, I was working on a hypertension pathway with a, with one of the companies and they were saying like, oh, and the pathway was really cool. It's like, how do you kind of basically semi-automate a lot of the annoying things that I have to do as a doctor or that like my MA has to do? How do you automate that? Really cool pathways, alerting pathways. How do you set these things up but in all of their examples their blood pressure was 80 over 120 and i was like i know that this is just a mock-up this is figma whatever but like if you're going to show this to anybody that's going to be implementing this like that's like a, a maybe not a deal breaker but like your credibility gets lost a lot so it's these little things right and again it's the designer didn't go to med school um but small things where just kind of build it in build that credibility make it look real um makes makes a difference so yeah no, no disasters but like these are like small just little even in the design phase where it, and having a clinician to kind of catch that and um, and help with that is helpful. Do you do you often find that I guess talking about that early stage selling process is it typically a physician? Or I guess in your example, would it typically be a physician that's looking at it or a clinician that's looking at the mock-up and trying to make an evaluation about maybe you're looking for some sort of user feedback or customer discovery to see would I use this product, but a mistake like that is just so distracting that clinicians can't get past it that like this is absolutely not realistic it, it can be and, and there's different stages of um who you're looking at but the, again probably not a deal breaker because again i was actually very impressed with like all the other you know um care loops and things that they were putting in but um i mean it doesn't, it doesn't help your case <laughs> yeah i think um physicians as a whole, we're trained to be like fairly detail oriented. So I think it's one of those things where you could have a really quality software setup, but you're going to just like hyper focus on the one thing that's wrong because that's what we do for a living. Right. And just kind of focus on the one thing that's wrong. Um, I think what's interesting um, is the difference between marketing towards a physician specifically and marketing towards the health system and finding product market fit. I think it's really easy to convince a doctor or a group of doctors that you have a really cool service or app or device, et cetera. Um, it's really hard to convince a health system that you have a awesome setup. So how do you kind of advise or coach your startups to go down that road or attack that battle? Yeah, hundred percent. The, the clinician is not the end user. Like they're, they're, they're definitely not the buyer. I can't think of a single time that the clinician would be the buyer. Um, 
so you you need to have an internal clinical champion for sure like someone that says like again it's it's that clinical cosign right it's like i as a doctor or i as a nurse or i as a pharmacist think that this is medically safe to use with our patients if we put this into play um so you need to have that but that is definitely like <laughs> just the first step um so and then so the second one is like what's the clinical roi for the health system right and so that it's usually like what is the thing that they are wanting to be focusing on for that quarter or that year or kind of you know what what KPI are they trying to do? So it, it's aligning both. I mean, obviously have like a safe product that um, the frontline wants to use, but for adoption um, and even to do a pilot, like there has to be some kind of like business case that it's solving. So I think the tough part about selling into health systems, especially if you're doing that B2B route is like, you have to serve at least like three or four different stakeholders, at least even to get like the pilot off the ground. One thing you just mentioned there was, was kind of this concept of timing, which I've never really thought about that it's not just pure ROI, there's maybe shifting priorities from the health system perspective. Could you give some examples of what those types of priorities might be and maybe a way that someone on the outside, say a startup that's planning to make a big pitch and their big sales call push, how would, how might they time that better if, if there's any way to do that at all? I don't know if I've cracked that nut yet. Um, I can give examples of things that you know, people, you know, pillars that people align towards. Um, and so that's why kind of like identifying that internal champion is helpful. And like on the call, I've, I've seen this, like if I've been on the startup side's call, pitching into a health system, I've seen some of our internal champions like start to um, steer the conversation in different ways um, towards each of the, the pillars that they know to be the important one to be honest, of the quarter, like things change fast, right? Biggest ones these days, um, staffing, so tough, right? There's a high MA turnover, call center turnover, um, people just answering the phones and, and clinician turnover. So how can you do more with less? Can you use technology to fill some of these gaps? I think um, staffing is a big one. Patient access is always a big one too. So, you know, um, particularly, I guess, we're, I guess we're in a kind of post COVID period at this point, but like there's so much pent up demand to see different specialists, different doctors. Um, so how can we get more patients in, get patients that need to be seen? Um, so that access piece is, is also huge. And then one piece that I've seen, it's, it's been, I've seen some lip service towards, but I think there's like legitimate traction towards it is the like diversity, equity, and inclusion piece. So like if you have um, some play that can make the social determinants of health or equity or be able to check that box is the wrong word, but to, to truly affect change um, in that arena, that's actually gained more traction probably in the last year or two years that, that I've seen now than like in the past. So I think uh, kind of along that line, since you brought up the um, kind of imbalances and equities that we see, um, I guess, how would you advise uh, a startup that you're working with or a company you're working with on Kind of managing or accounting for those inequities in like the algorithms or the software right because we know we our data is not that great our emrs aren't the best tools to collect data but um you know bad data in bad algorithm out kind of situation so oh totally i mean i i'm gonna keep my soapbox to a minimum uh, because there's so many different things around this right because it's like in short particularly when you're doing these machine learning um algorithms predictive analytics you're using old data to be predictive and if your data is biased um and 
mm-hmm. yeah, if your if your data is biased, like you're just going to perpetuate kind of all of these inequities from before. So I think just being step one is just be mindful of that. Like just because you have a ton of data doesn't mean that that data is good. Um, so it's always be skeptical. And then I, I think test for the, for the specific use cases, right? So if there is a um, patient population that has like low access to broadband internet or low access to smartphone usage. Um, doesn't have English as, as a first language, kind of like have these at least like use cases in mind um, and test against those early um, just to make sure that you're not leaving people behind, be, people, you know, being on the wrong side of that digital divide. Um, so I think one, just being mindful of it first, super helpful. Um, and then two, like actually just kind of, you know, stress testing against that. Yeah, I think the, so the, the, the idea of data quality, data governance, have you, have you found, I, I guess, a shift? I, I know AI has sort of been the the big talk of the town. It, is it, to me, it seems like it creates even more opportunities for things to go more wrong. And there's certainly a, a huge opportunity on the other side. But when we're talking about something as significant as clinical decision support, what I guess beyond just testing and making sure in a specific case, because predictive analytics, you sort of know the inputs and you know the the, the desired outputs, but something like an LLM, it's a little bit more amorphous. So I guess, do you have any thoughts around how we can put borders on that or how we can sort of feel confident that we're not putting something out there in a clinical setting that that might have this bias that goes undiscovered? Yeah, I think two two ways to kind of take that. I think like one is like everyone wants to jump right to diagnosis and like di- clinician bias. But like diagnosis is hard. We do we do med school, we do residency. We like we continue to like hone that piece. Um, so would it be great if a computer could do it for me? Yes. Uh, do I think that it's happening anytime in the future? No. So it's kind of like I think a lot of just like the. Um, pieces that we can start to start, you know, using AI and machine learning for are like the boring stuff. I mean, like diagnosis is sexy, but like, just like do, do the boring admin work. Like that's the stuff. And then, then free up more uh, clinician time to think and do the diagnosis. Um, and again, there, there might be some Dr. Hubris baked into that, but I think like one, it's safer, right? So examples I've seen is like using these large language models and things to like generate prior authorization letters, right? It's stuff that's like dumb anyway, takes up my time. And if that can be like mostly auto-generated um, or at least auto-drafted um, with like a little bit of editing from my end, to me, that's like a great starting point. It's like a pain point that everybody feels relatively low stakes. Um, and you can kind of go from there. So anyway, so that's kind of like my take is like, eh, like I would love for it to kind of take on high, you know, for, for the machines to take on higher order thought, but like, let's just start with like the, the low hanging fruit. Oh, man. Where, where do you see the regulatory environment going for these kinds of softwares? They are struggling to catch up. I think the FDA is probably going to have the most say in that. CMS kind of, sort of, in as much as like they get to say, like, if you use it, um, what are the reimbursements <laughs> and regulations going to be, be around that. But I think FDA is probably going to um, have first crack, at least from like a federal government regulatory standpoint. Um, when it comes to like governing these 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 different um, particularly AI algorithms that because it's like one thing to like get an FDA um, clearance on a device and it's like 
that's this is the shape <laughs> you print it you 3d print it it'll be the shape forever the algorithms are, are constantly changing so it's a kind of what is that maintenance of certification so to speak um of that fda clearance to to be determined i, I think people don't know yet um but and I'll, I'll, I'll see if i can drop something in the show notes for you guys but i the fda does have like a list of like kind of their software as a medical device and um ai cleared stuff Awesome, awesome. We'll keep that link in there. And while we're on the topic of AI, I'm going to uh, pick your brain here a little bit. So look, you're CMIO, you get two two AI companies. Their their AIs do the same thing. How do you how do you decide which which road you're going to take? Like how how do you compare two AIs that purport to do the same thing against each other? Yeah, I think the two pieces that I look at is like. Because having some lovable, some level of explainable AI, I think is important, right? So there's some level of it, like black box, kind of like what's, um, you can't see fully what's under the hood, but like really knowing the inputs and what kind of, and what data they trained it on. I think that's like probably the two biggest things. And like people like to be a little proprietary about this stuff, but like, I think as a company that's hawking AI stuff, like if you say like we put our user interface over open AI's chat GPT three. I'm like, okay, fine. Like, I guess we could probably do that too. Right. So kind of knowing like one, what's the source kind of what's, what's the algorithms that you're building things on, um, is the important piece. Um, so they, what, what are the inputs and, and, and what were like the, the data set. And I actually, I think the other thing too, is like, if, if it's one thing to implement, right. Implement an EHR, implement a telehealth program, it's, another thing to maintain so kind of like what does that maintenance program look like how much maintenance cost that going to be for us as the health system how much are you as the um, vendor willing to take that on so i think being able to articulate kind of what the maintenance process and maintenance cost is is something that i kind of continually think about because it's like the implementation is a big lift but that maintaining is also kind of a pain too i guess going further down that going further down that road of of sort of implementation, how do you look at something like a change management process or, or actually deploying a new piece of technology and sort of what's your thought process around whether or not to deploy first, but then also what is what are those steps that you go through as you uh, as you're pushing something out there that's new? <laughs> Oh, bad. So much of my life is change management. Um, I, I, I smile as you're asking. I think a lot of it is like kind of picking your partners inter- internally, so at least for me. Like, so it's like, hey, there's this company, they're trying to do X, Y, or Z. Um, and then like, I have my go-to clinics and go-to people that's like, okay, like they'll be receptive to Matt's crazy idea number 17. Um, so I think for me, I'm always kind of thinking about like, internally who might some of those partners be um i guess as a company this is where it's hard because it's like when you're from the outside looking in it's a little tough but it's like if you can kind of like pre-select a willing clinic to pilot um you know that's in my region in my purview kind of talk with them and talk to me that's less thinking for me you've kind of already like pre-sold um on 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 your internal clinical champion so i think there's there's different ways of doing it but i think it's um yeah, it's just, it's having it for me. It's having a bench of people to of <laughs> the, the ready and the willing. And I think on the for the vendor side or you know for for the startup side, it's like if you can articulate like we will really help with the implementation piece. Like it'll be minimal impact on staff. We'll take on you know we as the startup will take on all the training and support and field all the calls when Doctor So and So gets mad. Um, I think that de-risks it a little in my mind. I'm like more willing to kind of take that on as a flyer. Um, and uh, again, piloting it doesn't align with like one of the organizational goals and like stuff that I have to like 
line up anyway, that also helps, right? So if, if this like is going to three X patient access, then I'm far more likely to say yes. Cause I know that that's a thing that we're lining up on. So if you're, if you're on the startup side of this in your early stage, you're developing your product and you're trying to figure out, um, what Dr. So-and-so is going to think about your app. You don't have Dr. So-and-so, right? You don't have these internal clinical champions. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of startups go down the KOL route and they try to find, you know, the big names in the space. And my, my personal opinion is a lot of times those people are so disconnected from the actual practice of clinical medicine because of how influential they are in the space that they often may not be the best people to advise in the, in those positions. But how would you advise a startup to kind of figure out if there is a market for their idea amongst like the rank and file physicians, I guess, as opposed to, you know, the commander in chief levels. Yeah. I, I mean, your, your take of KOLs probably aligns with mine a lot. Um, yeah. Cause like those that the frontline docs or frontline clinicians, I, I think are seeing what's happening today, not what they read in Becker's or you know, whatever. Um, so and I, I, there are there are places I think there are places to, to seek seek these out. Matter Health, like I'll, I'll shout them out again. I think it's a great place. There's a pretty deep clinician bench. Health Tech Nerds um, is another kind of online community that I'm part of. But same thing. They, they have a pretty deep clinician bench as well. So it's like kind of a place to say. And then everybody in the digital health community is like super tight. It's insane how small it is. Um, so I think that like you can kind of get together at least like who would your early adopters look like, right? Um, um, so there are pockets to go and seek out these clinicians that are generally still practicing um, and able to give give feedback. I think for the most part, like everyone's very giving of their time and perspective. So another thing I've, I've noticed um, kind of at different health tech demo days, pitch days, et cetera, is um, I know you, you mentioned a little while earlier that it's important to have multiple stakeholders within the system that are willing to champion your your product right and i notice a lot of people will pitch these ideas which may be great ideas but they're they're often driven by like a personal story right like, um, i don't know my mom had a gastric ulcer and that's why i made this app right and um it's one of those things where i think it's like so hyper focused to where you're not going to get three clinicians to buy in, but at the same time, the founder has this really personal attachment to that disease process or that story, whether it was personal condition um, or, you know, a family condition, et cetera. Um, uh, how would you reorient or try to reroute a founder that's kind of going down that path of they might have one stakeholder period and that's it? Yeah, uh, a good question. And, and I think having a connection like and I, I advise a lot of startups. I've actually never been a founder. Like I've not had the balls to make that jump. So again, more power to anyone that that has that has done that. Um, so I think having that personal connection, having that personal story matters. Like I think that's what drives you and, and kind of keeps you going. Um, but what I tell both clinicians and 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 founders is like, is this a you problem or like is this like a, a wider problem? So kind of. Um, and that and that's when you stress test things, right? That's that's when you kind of you ask friends, ask. So I mean, ideally, before you go to demo day or pitch day, like you've asked a few other people, like, would this thing be helpful? Um, so I, I think you know, kind of start start with what's personal to you, but then say like, what again? What is what is a problem that you're trying to solve? Um, and then ultimately, it's like you know, what is a total addressable market for said problem? Um, so I think having those in mind, again, ideally before you're publicly pitching um, is helpful. And again, the, the communities that I mentioned to get clinician feedback is also helpful to kind of say like, hey, are these things that you're 
um, running into or your know, problems that, that you're running into? Is, is this a problem that needs to be solved? I think we've been we've been riding the physician high horse for a little bit. So I'm going to kind of flip the debate back on to physician founders. So the other thing I noticed in a lot of these demo days is uh, I know we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago here, but you know, you'll see a number that says X hundred million people have heart failure and they have no jump between that to how their software or their service is going to either produce a return on investment for the system or the insurance company or whoever their, their customer is going to be um, or how they're going to make money. It's kind of that, you know, one, two, three, question mark, question mark, question mark, profit, right? So a lot of these slides I see like that. So on the opposite, how would you coach physician founders to actually, like, you know, include more concrete numbers, customer acquisition costs, market size, market fit, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, doctors are very good at medicine i think very bad at business for the most part i, I, there's, we, I know we have doctor friends that get mad when i say that but like that's just not that's not part of our training right um and a lot of the things it's like what actually this is the difference what doctors do is like we're good at like what is the end of one patient in front of us and then we can read literature and say like okay if i can if i can have this impact on a patient or if i can kind of come up with this idea or this you know this this app that can help one of my patients in front of me Okay, of course. I just like look at the literature and say, if there are X many here, you just multiply that, right? Um, so that's that's doctor math, and that's like not actually how business works. Um, so the way that I would coach, um, and actually, I'd love your guys' take on this too. The way that I coach uh, them, at least, is like, what's your wedge, right? So like, what's the thing that like you know super well? Um, so of heart failure, like, is it like heart failure in a specific patient population, or heart failure like in Montana that you know really well? Um, that's your wedge and he said okay this is how we would get our first year or second year and then like how does that then what does that um look like to get to all you know x million people that that have it um but it's like i guess start with a realistic story too that's i think that's the other thing like well that you're probably saying it's like okay yeah, magically we get like 100 million people but it's like can you articulate a path that sounds reasonable to me and if not then i'm like no <laughs> yeah i think this is a this is definitely a, an area that's very near and dear to my heart is sort of building up a series of defensible assumptions that ultimately are all made up, but follow a trail that you can explain each step and defend each step with some sort of referenceable numbers. I think what, what you call a wedge there is, is a really great thing to focus in on is, is what is that single proof of concept? And, and we might call it something like a unit. What is the single economic unit that functions and, how many of those do you need to layer up to make this a viable business? I think that would be my my approach to to building up a business from one patient to you know however many people have heart failure. What what percentage of the total market do you think you can capture with with whatever your business is? Um, about market sizing, it's always I think this is another thing that Mo and I have seen at least in a few of the pitches that we've we've been in is. Um, trying to define the right market doesn't necessarily mean defining the biggest market is is maybe another way of saying what you just mentioned is like where do you win no matter what like what is that subset what is the area that you have that expertise in so i think that's a great point yeah the one other thing that i'll throw out is that um I call it like spotlight adjacent, right? So it's like everyone is talking about Ozempic and all of like the weight loss drugs, right? Is there something that's like one, like again, spotlight adjacent that's like kind of ride that wave, ride where people are going. But and again, like 
you as a founder or you as like a team, as a clinical team, have particular expertise in, right? So is it like the, to be honest, are you really good at doing prior auth, right? So do you have a prior auth company that can um, um, be, again, kind of ride that wave or whatever else is happening, but but you're not like right dead center where everyone else is trying to, trying to go towards? I think for for the ideation sort of phase, and there's there's a lot of, and you know, from my perspective, it seems like founders that that develop something that they deem medically necessary that this will save people's lives, therefore I must build it. Taking that leap to developing a go to market strategy, I think, is one of the hardest things, especially for physician founded, physician led startups that that at least I've seen in my experience. Um, we talked a little about about building a wedge. What are some other steps that founders can take? What are the conversations, the titles of people that that they may need to validate with and sort of beyond health tech nerds and matter that they could go to, uh, at least that you've seen in your experience? Yeah. And so you're saying kind of how do you build your initial team, right? Like kind of what, what's the expertise that needs to be in the room? So, I mean, ideally the, the you know, physician founder comes in with clinical expertise. Um, it's fine. It's the business and ops, or sorry, um, op, yeah, yeah, business and ops, right? So like the business is like kind of like what's the financial viability? Like how do you start to um, build that model? Um, and then ops is just like, sometimes you can have clinicians that are good at the both clinical and the ops, but like I've realized just like having a good ops partner frees up the time to like make the product as clinically sound as possible. Um, and again, it's one thing to work in a clinic as a doctor and it's one thing to run a clinic. And I think, again, some have both, but like finding a good ops partner, I, I think is, is super helpful. So I think that's like the main, like the main triad that I would, that I would throw out there. Um, actually, I'll throw it back to you guys. Like what, what else has been sort of like key pieces that, you, that you've seen um, as part of like the initial founding teams? Yeah, no, I think you made a, um, interesting omission, I'll say. I, I, don't, I think it was an intentional omission. I don't think it was uh, an unintentional omission. You didn't forget it. But I, I see a lot of startups and founders that are clinicians get hyper-focused on finding a technical founder. They're like, man, I need to find a coder. Or I need to find a programmer. And it's like, no, that you can hire a coder. You can hire a programmer. Those, That's not difficult to do. Um, it might just cost money. But the, the real hard stuff is going to be one, commercializing your product. And then two, when you get to deploying it, you'll need that ops group or you'll need a sales group that's familiar working in that health system space that can do the outreach to the people and go to sites and train clinicians and nurses. And I think that's what a lot of people forget is once you start getting into that space where you're developing a product for multiple stakeholders now all of a sudden your training material can't just be physician focused right and so now you're training physicians you're training nurses ma's cna's whoever it may be um, and they all have drastically different levels of training and knowledge and comfort with technology right your nurses or cna's might be younger they might be older they might be you know we have a lot of nurses of all ages at our institution and they're familiarity with technology and whatnot varies drastically. So I think that was an interesting omission that you made that I would agree with. I think I think your your sales team or deployment team, ops team, whatever you want to call it, it's very crucial. And then um, kind of the business side or some sort of financial controls. Yeah. And the other thing so the, on, on the informatics half, like one of our mantras is people process technology in that order. Right. Um, so again, <laughs> I love technology and I love tech. Um, I think one of the things that I throw out there, not a must have, but like, and again, I love your, love your guys' take on this is like, 
bring in a designer early because I think a lot of things tend to get over engineered and I'm using the term deliberately um, where it's like, oh, all these cool features would be so fun to have. And then it's kind of overwhelming for like the end user and it's tough for your sales team as you're explaining all the different features. Um, but having a designer in early to help streamline some of these things, they're almost never brought in at that you know, seed stage. But I've seen them work wonders when they ha- when they kind of <laughs> undo the work of whatever happened before. So I, I kind of wanted both of your takes on, on the role of this designer. Maybe not on the founding team, but like hiring that on uh, on the earlier side. So, so just to clear, just to, just to clarify, Matt would say a simple, pretty product is better than an ugly product that does lots of things. Is that did I catch that right? <laughs> Might be an oversimplification. <laughs> <laughs> But, but adoptability is such a big thing, right? Um, oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say, like, yeah, you can. it's easier to sell something that looks good um, when it comes to products, because especially, uh, but then all of a sudden you see stuff like Meditech, right? Like, there's still people, there's still hospitals that are buying that, right? And it's still, I mean, for Hyder and for people that know, it's, I mean, it's about as close to a command line interface as you can get in the modern day medical setting. Um, and like, I'll argue, like I've made this argument before. I don't think there's a single EMR with great user experience. Like I think Epic's probably the best, but it's kind of, in my opinion, but that's like the best of the worst kind of situation. But, um, yeah, I think for too long medicine, just the field as a whole, hasn't really paid attention to the user experience side of things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think the patient experience has gotten a lot better. Um, and kind of like the patient as consumer sort of thing has, has moved that to be more usable but yeah the clinician side is 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 rough does that and you know this is sort of going back to a, a previous conversation that we had but does that user experience that need for a designer it is it something about the ease of implementation where you're talking about your own processes and it gives you another layer maybe, and I'm sort of putting words in your mouth here is it gives you another tool in your tool belt to deploy this because you can say, not only does it meet our ROI, but it's going to be easier for to use. It's going to be easier to train on. And if you can reduce button clicks is the way that you, you look at it in, in typical software development. But is that what we're really after here with this UX hire, this, this early designer? I think so. It, it's one is like, because like the training costs or training times, so just as a specific example, like we use Epic at, 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 at my place. And like for a new doc, um, even like, even if they've been on Epic before, each place is specific. So like to, to onboard a new doctor in an outpatient setting is somewhere between like eight and 16 hours of training just on the Epic part. Um, so I think like that kind of talk speaks to like the usability and like the, just the, that training um, time and barrier that needs to go in. So if you have something that is intuitive um, to use out, out of the box, like you can just decrease that training time. And should you make any changes, um, like you, you can be a little more agile because you're not having to like, oh, hey, we're, we're doing it actually even for an epic upgrade. Like we probably do at least four plus hours of webinars on like these are the things that you have to know to like get through your day when, we, when the upgrade goes into place. So if you have good design, I think, I haven't seen any. I haven't seen anyone actually invest time in it. That's why I brought it up. But I, my my thesis is that like you can like cut that um, training time and adoption time a lot lower, and then just spend more time iterating, using it, and you know just putting it into play. So this goes back to maybe Mo's earlier question: is is would that be something that tips the scales if you got two AI companies coming at you with the same tool, and and one of them has 
just a slight edge in, in usability or UX. Yeah. And again, and, and I will say it's, it's less about looking pretty and it's just like, is it intuitive? Is it easy to use? Right. Um, and I think, I think, I think that is, it's like, cause a lot of things that I'm thinking about is like, okay, if I'm going to spend money on a, a vendor, what's the usage rate it's going to be right so they get what's going to you know if, if it's a perfect if it's a great product but like the learning curve is like a two-week learning curve that adoption is going to be low and like whatever gains that they can get is going to be kind of tough to do um so yeah like i said the, the way that i would kind of approach is like try to get a demo have a couple of my frontline users take a look at it you know not not just me um and kind of get their feedback you know what's what's that level of usability well, that's great i think we touched on I don't think I had any additional early stage hires. I think we had a designer, someone on the commercialization side, and obviously the clinician. You know, that sort of fits in the chief product and which direction, which shape is this thing going to be? From from the health system side, I'd be really curious to know. And you know, going back to to an earlier point, is it is it better to have a product that is very focused that you feel you can fit into your tech stack and into your process stack or do you look for opportunities to utilize a a tool in multiple ways and so having sort of a broad feature set at the outset is worth investing in in the early stage no i I think it's so hard because like people are getting a little tired of like of the point solutions but i overall i think a purpose-built solution I tend to like a little more, mostly because it's hard to do everything well, right? It's like you're kind of jack of all trades, master of none. That's called epic, right? Like they're not good at any specific thing, but it's all kind of bundled together. Um, so for me, it's like, I guess if there was like a specific company, I'd, I'd over-index for like executing really well on the problem that I that I need solved. Um, I think if you can then actually use that as a wedge, come in and then actually start to do other things, then, then that's great. Um, but I think generally, like if I'm particularly with early stage, it's like, hey, is there like an acute problem that we need to solve um, that, that they can kind of come in and really kind of close the gap on that? Um, I'll, actually, I'll, I'll use a specific example. I'll, I'll give them a shout out since I, I do work with them. So ClearSteps, one of the companies I work with, they do. Um, it's like a symptom checker, but it's a it's a AI chat bot for patient self triage. So you come in with a runny nose or a cough and kind of say like, how do you work your way through that? A lot of different um, competitors in that space, but like the differentiator that they put in, and I think that makes a difference, is you go through the symptoms and symptom checker and says you should go to urgent care. Then they also provide the link to schedule and directions, to, um, and you so you can pick like the urgent care that's like within a X mile radius of where you know where you currently are so i think like it's that extra step right so how do you kind of integrate some of that so like they've done both you know patient symptom triage as well as kind of some of that scheduling aspect um so when you can kind of start to tack on extra things great but then the core thing that they're solving for is how do we like decrease like the phone call burden on our on our nurse triage you know call center i think you made a this example brought something up into mind. So we've been talking a lot about kind of physicians as a market and health systems as a market. Um, and a lot of the startups I've talked to and a lot of people I talk to always tell them the biggest market in healthcare as far as dollars goes is the insurance companies, right? And this seems like an idea where, you know, if I'm if I'm marketing this, I'm going straight to the insurance companies, right? And like bypassing everything else and being like, look, here's your nurse hotline as an AI chat bot, and it's going to send them to in-network provider or whatever, XYZ, right? And it can pull up a FaceTime call, whatever, Zoom call with an NP or a PA or whatnot. Um, 
So how's your experience been in kind of market? I don't know if you've had experience with marketing towards or products towards an insurance company side and kind of how has that been for you? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think like the two um, markets that get slept on are actually um, insurers and then pharma. I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to the pharma side of things. But on the insurer side, I think the tough part there, particularly for early stage, is like, because insurers tend to have scale like on like the hundreds of thousands to millions of patients, the evidence bar, like the, the, the clinical evidence bar or like an you know, effective evidence bar is higher. So like, I think rarely have I seen like an early stage, you know, um, seed level company get a insurer deal because it's like, they're kind of at scale already. So it's great if you can do it. Um, but a lot of times like, Optum or Blue Shield is like not going to take a flyer on an idea or like a prototype <laughs> because like they have millions of members. Um, so I think that's been the difference. So they, the, the ones I've seen tend to land those deals tend to be a little on like the slightly more mature side um, and like a more table, uh, stable tech stack. Um, so yeah, anyway, that, that's kind of like my initial. That's, well, I agree. Like I think like that's again, that's an untapped source. And then like I said, if we want to. Um, riff more on the insurer side or talk a little bit more about the, the pharma opportunity. Yeah, I'd be excited to hear about uh, your opinion on the pharma side. I know CVS just uh, shut down their whole clinical trial side, um, but I'm, I'm sure you're going to give more input on other opportunities or avenues on the pharma side. Yeah. So I think a lot of it, like, when people hear pharma, Pfizer, Roche, um, et cetera, they're thinking clinical trials, right? And like, that's like a, that's the big moneymaker. I think that's where a lot of traditional VC um, tends to go and has really swung back towards like kind of post pandemic. Um, but there's most of these places have very strong digital health arms. Um, so the example I use, um, you know, so there are certain companies that um, sell blood thinners for patients that might have AFib. So again, there's a pill for that, but how do you identify these patients, um, you know, upstream? So like there, I've seen programs where like so certain companies um, can have wearables that can, you know, like the Aura Ring or a, a iPhone watch or Fitbit that can kind of catch people that might have like this, you know, um, previously undiagnosed AFib. Oh, cool. How do you find them? How do you get them in touch with a doctor? Um, and then from the pharma standpoint, like how do you ultimately like give them meds that that can help them? But I th like they think very far upstream because like they, they kind of go condition specific, right? So are, are there certain conditions that um, might have a digital health based solution um, that can be like top top of funnel for you know drugs down the line? Actually, um, Flatiron Health is probably the one that I that I use the most, right? So they they were a basically you know built out as like a purpose built um, oncology EHR, and apparently it was like actually for EHR a, a good design. I, I haven't actually seen it, but everyone I've talked to says it as a clinician loved using it. Um, and they were actually able to sell that, you know, not to Epic, not to Cerner, but they sold it to, oh shoot, I don't remember if it was Roche or Pfizer, but they sold it to one of like the big pharma companies um, again, and now that's used as high quality data ingestion for patients that might be on clinical trials or to identify patients that could be on clinical trials. Um, so again, clinical trials tends to be the end game, but like a, a lot of these companies are, are, are looking upstream to see are there digital health solutions that might fit into that um, portfolio. Yeah. yeah, I think you brought up wearables, which is interesting um, uh, given your so you're you're entirely remote, right? As far as you're, you don't kind of have an in in person clinic. Use all the. I go I go to clinic one day a week. I'm I'm a, I'm a real doctor one day a week. Okay, 
Okay, so you're you're mostly doing yep. doing telehealth or kind of virtually delivering healthcare, remotely delivering healthcare, and we're starting to see there's a ton of user generated data now or patient generated data, right? So everyone's got a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or a Weeping Scale or whatnot. Um, and we were talking earlier about kind of populating this data and then maintaining the quality of the data. So one, I guess a two-part question. So one, how has your practice been impacted by access to this kind of data and how would you want to kind of streamline access to that going forward? And then two, how do you kind of accurately warehouse that data or appropriately warehouse that data to where it can be used in the future or, you know, further product yeah, development. That's a great question. Um, it kind of goes to that thing of like some data good, more data better. Not always true, right? It's like as a clinician, like, I don't care like how many steps you're taking on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> but it is helpful for me to know um, like your average over a month or like are there certain days that like, okay. So, so for me, it's, it's, it's less about like just each of those like lines of data and like what are the correlations between activity and mood or like different things. So like generating novel insights, so developing that analytics layer, I think. So it's like, how do you find you know, correlations between these different data streams that I've found to be interesting, um, both for patient, um, I guess counseling and, and or, and or just like insights into like their life and kind of stuff that they're doing. So I think, before I, I used to think like there's just lots of data and that's useless and I don't really want to hear or see about it. But like when you're when you're when you're able to start to again kind of see two to three to four different streams of data in context um, with like a good analytics layer, that's when things get interesting. So a lot of continuous glucose monitoring, um, I think, is, is was one that is helpful. And again, for patients, that's great biofeedback too, right? They're like, oh yeah, when I eat that donut, <laughs> it goes sky high. And I also don't feel well <laughs> the rest of the day. Um, so it's kind of one of those, it's, it's things that they know, but like when they know it and then they see it, that that's a very like, helpful patient motivator. Um, did I hit both parts of the question? Yeah, and I can say about that last point, uh, from firsthand experience, it's been a total game changer. Yeah. I think we're we're hitting 45, 46 minutes now, and I'm sure we could probably go on with Matt for another hour or two pretty easily. So we'll probably have to to bring him back in a bit. Um, but yeah, thanks for dropping your your knowledge bombs and and wisdom. Um, it's been it's been an awesome conversation, and I think you're on Twitter, or Matt, Matt Sakamoto. Yeah, Matt, right? Matt Sakamoto, Matt. both uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so if you guys want to find Matt, Twitter, LinkedIn, hunt him down, send him messages, get him to consult for your, your start. Really great chat. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you both. Wow, Matt is just Matt is just the best. A wealth of knowledge. Um, that was an excellent conversation. What'd you think? Yeah, I think it was a great conversation. We both learned a ton from Matt, and I know he's always a wealth of wisdom. Um so continuing along our trend of kind of summarizing our conversations or taking three take home points um, from conversations. I think the first one for me is, um, you know, diagnosis is sexy, but it's overrated. Focus on the boring stuff. Um, I think Matt made a great point about just the administrative burden and how big of a pain point that is for clinicians and health systems. Um, and I think that's a big opportunity for growth for a lot of product. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I wonder if it would lead to any, you know, issues in fundraising. VCs love the sexy, the big sexy problem, but to actually solve the problems of your customer, I think needs to come first. And that's, that's an important piece. 
Um, for me, my big takeaway was almost a double click into ROI. ROI is not enough. Um, you actually need to time the priorities of a health system. And so quarterly, there will be a specific initiative that health system is after. And as a startup, you've just got to find a way to understand what that is this quarter when you're about to make your sales calls. Um, these can be things. These can be things like doing more with less, working with reduced headcount, um, something around patient access, or something like DEI. And so these are shifting priorities of, of health systems that I think startups need to be really cognizant of and trying to get that timing right is important. I think the, the third point, my last point here, um, was that although the health systems and the physicians are the biggest market, um, in the eyes of a lot of these companies and startups, um, the two big players that people sleep on a lot is insurance companies and pharmaceuticals. And you know, Matt was quite passionate about the using digital health tools as a funnel for pharmaceutical companies and kind of patient identification is really important for someone that's trying to sell a medication to patients that have a disease for someone that's trying to sell a medication. So they wanna make sure that the right patients are being identified. So. I think that was an awesome, awesome point there. It's great. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Deciphering Health Tech. We'll catch you next time. Yeah, you can go on our website, decipherhealthtech.com, and all our social links and whatnot are there. And you can subscribe to us in your favorite podcast um, software. I think we're going to be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. So you should be able to find us there by the time this airs. Um, and thanks for listening, guys. Um, and thanks for listening, guys.